Thanks for checking out this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. It's episode 530. I'm Rob Walling. Every week, we cover topics relating to building and growing startups that are ambitious but sustainable. We know that starting a company is hard and that more than half of being a startup founder is managing your own psychology and that so much of this journey is making difficult decisions with incomplete information where the right answer is impossible to find through math or data. And that is one thing that makes it so hard for us. And so it's great to sit down once a week and to think about this, to hear from other founders that are going through it and to just feel like we're not alone in this journey. This week, I sat down with Derek Reimer. You may know him from the Art of Product podcast, and he's the founder of Savvy Cal, which is a competitor to tools like Calendly and You Can Book Me. Derek and I take on a bunch of listener questions this week, including how to make good decisions on a dev team, whether we have regrets about selling drip, the effects of web scraping on your business and how you can potentially block web scraping, how much of your journey and success can you share with family and friends, and more. Derek and I have known each other for almost a decade at this point, so it's always a pleasure to have him on the show. I think we have great chemistry, and it's just really comfortable when we sit down on the mic together. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Derek Reimer, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me back on the show. Always a pleasure. I know, man. You've been on several times. For folks who don't recall, you are the co-founder of Drip that you and I built together and exited in 2016. You had founded a little side project called Code Tree that you built up to, if I recall, is about 4K MRR. And we talked on this podcast about how you sold it for $128,000 right around the time we sold Drip as well. You, I think you sold a car, a house. It was <laughs> a mass liquidation event. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when we moved here. And now you are working on SavvyCal at SavvyCal.com, which is online scheduling. So if people use Calendly or you can book me, it's, it's a, a similar tool to that. And you're getting some good traction with that. If folks want to hear your journey, they can head over to artofproductpodcast.com. You excited to dive into some questions today? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked. So our first question comes from Colin at thepodcasthost.com. Take it away. Hey, Rob. It's Colin here from thepodcasthost.com and our SaaS product, uh, which is Alitude.com, podcast maker. My questions around the SaaS we're building is the team that we have now, which is um, growing. We have five developers now on the team. And I'm, I'm asking about decisions, really. We're starting to struggle with decisions because we have more than just one or two people. We're starting to have quite a lot of, well, not a lot. <laughs> we're starting to every now and again have disagreements. And not in a bad way. We're having good discussions around these. But one person will believe we should go one direction. One person shall believe we'll go the other direction. And we're reaching an impasse more often than we used to. I'm wondering how teams, development teams in particular, should think about decisions, should think about when it's not a black and white decision, there's not one right answer. You know, this technology has these pros and cons, this technology has those pros and cons. How do you decide? How do you decide which direction to go, what decision to make? I'm curious how you do that on on Teams, especially software ones. So uh, thanks for all the content you do and uh, looking forward to your answer. Interesting question. And since I know a little more about Colin's business, I want to give some background. 
he and I have actually spoken. I've interviewed him for this very podcast and he the interview just hasn't gone live yet. So he runs a SaaS app in addition to uh, educational stuff for, for podcasters. And his team is relatively small and he's not a developer. So just as couching in case any of that, you know, is relevant. And I think he said in the voicemail that he went four developers, five developers. So it's, you know, still a relatively small team. What do you think about this topic of making decisions in a dev team? Yeah, this is a this is a really um, interesting question because it can get tricky when you have a number of developers on a team who each bring their own kind of varied experience to the table and have their own preferences and you know certain libraries that they prefer to use. Obviously, we we had to contend with this kind of thing at Drip, and for the longest time, we were very very small. It was just me and a couple junior developers, and so I got to kind of just call the shots on the the kind of like foundational pieces of technology that we're going to use. So I guess my first piece of advice is like someone should be in the leadership position on on what things, you know, what what the core values are in what in the, the types of technologies you want to use. And it really helps to like establish some guiding principles, like an example being like, are we willing to use libraries that are brand new or are we looking for a certain amount of time that they've been around and battle tested? Do we value there being a good amount of documentation? Is the library actively maintained? Do a lot of people on the team already know how to work with the underlying technology or is it some language that only one person knows? And, and they'll kind of be the, the bottleneck on maintaining it. And so considerations like that kind of are practical things you can use to, to kind of guide technology decisions. I think another good exercise is to encourage folks to like try to craft a thoughtful pitch for it. Like, and in writing is probably a, a good way to do it. And, you know, just organize your thoughts like, okay, if we're, if we're at an impasse and we're trying to figure out which library to use, you know, state your case and kind of roll through some of those, those guiding principles that the team has and does it check those boxes and, you know, use a little bit of, of persuasion, I guess, to, to try to try to advocate for the, the piece of technology you want to use. Yeah, I, I agree with all those points. And, and I think when I'm thinking about it, there, there has to be a hierarchy. This is like why that exists, right? And while it's not a dictatorship in terms of I make all the decisions and everyone listen, it, it shouldn't be like that. There should be helpful conversation. You know, you can vote if you want, but ultimately this comes back to who is responsible for this, you know, who owns this area of the company. And when I think about having a dev lead or a tech lead or a development manager, whatever title you want to imbue on them, they are ultimately responsible for uptime of the app. If it goes down, they should get paged at two in the morning, them or whoever else is on call, you know, that should be shared around. And they, I think, are, you know, the arbiter of, of these decisions. Ultimately, I love and I loved healthy discussions we used to have at Drip, both pre-acquisition and post-acquisition when it was just a handful of us to when we had an engineering team of, I don't know, maybe it was 16 or so when, you know, when we left. And there were spirited discussions, but ultimately it would come down to a couple options that made the most sense. And then sometimes there was just a decision made by the manager, you know, or made by made by one of us if it, if it percolated up. And in Colin's case, I don't know if he wants to be, you know, as the CEO founder, I don't know if as a non-developer he wants to be the ultimate arbiter, but technically he is the owner of all of it, right? He is the person who would make the decision if, if you know, a tech lead didn't know what to do or whatever. But realistically, if it's within the wheelhouse, it's in the discipline that, you know, your developers are experts in, then I would have that senior person be making those decisions and have its responsibility and its ownership and it's the freedom to make the decisions such that they are willing to own them later. 
You know, if you use a cutting edge, brand new library, know that that has risk, you know, per your comments, that maybe it gets abandoned or maybe it, they do a 2.0 update where the entire API changes like a lot of the, you know, the JavaScript uh, MVC frameworks did back in the day. And yeah, there's, there's a balance here. If every decision is a bunch of conversation and even arguments, something's broken. That's not how it should be. In general, there's usually a pretty obvious choice or maybe two. And in general, if you have a, a team that kind of wants to do the best thing and is keeping the mindset of, hey, we're building an app for the next decade, so we need to build use stable, maintained components, whether they're open source or, or not, components and libraries and this and that, oftentimes there's usually one or two obvious choices based on the language or the, or the tech stack that you have. There's a, there's a leader, so to speak, in the space. Yeah, and I think it's like encouraging kind of a mature mindset around technology. And I, I think I've seen this among developers as they get deeper into their career. Maybe the first couple of years you're a developer, you you really are kind of in the experimentation phase and you like to play around, pull brand new things off the shelf and play around with hot new technologies. And and I've seen many startups make this mistake where they like, you know, I'm, we're going to use Rethink DB for this thing because it's a really hot, cool new database. And then come to find out like it's a nightmare to the DevOps to, to keep it up and like reliable is a nightmare and it ends up being just an albatross. So I think the more mature developers get, oftentimes they become inherently skeptical of shiny new things and tend to, you know, all things being equal, go with the simplest architecture, the simplest technologies that are battle tested. And so I think even just laying that out is like, this is something that we, from practical standpoint, want to do and then try to hold things to that lens as much as possible. And you can't, sometimes you're going to have to take some risks and choose something where you're not totally certain that it'll pan out. But hopefully most of the time when you're making these decisions, it's it's a pretty straightforward one. And part of that is to use boring technologies. Like if, if I were to build a SaaS app, Again, God forbid that ever happens, but if I, <laughs> I'm, I'm only joking, but I would need someone to convince me pretty hard to not use either Ruby on Rails over Postgres or Python Django. And they just work. And I like HTML that just gets spit into the browser. And I know that some people really like all this, their spinny things as the MVC framework in your browser. It loads it, but that bugs the crap out of me. And, and I've just seen too many issues with it over the years. Yeah, it's getting more mature. And of course, apps built in that are, are, are doing great and there's pros and cons. But for me personally, there's some tried and true technologies that over time, of course, is Ruby on Rails in 10 years from now the choice? Probably not. Technology just doesn't tend to have that arc. You know, it does get outdated. But, you know, you got to look at that maturity curve and pick the things that'll work. Yeah. I think one more note on that too is like if you're looking at kind of the like hacker news crowd and a lot of people who are working at really large companies like Google or Facebook or Fortune 500 companies or whatever where there's just large dev teams, you'll see those types of organizations that are at high scale using a lot of microservices, being a polyglot organization where they just have 10 different programming languages in the mix and you choose best tool for the job. And and that's good for the stage that those companies are at. But if you're a bootstrapper trying to just get your initial version of your product off the ground, you do not want to be like mimicking what those teams are doing because they're implementing things so that they can scale it up to a team of 500 engineers handling crazy high volume of scale. And you're going to be a long way off from that. So so I think that's, you know, like like looking to funded companies to, to see how to build your business. Like it's also risky to look at, at funded companies and large organizations to see how to organize your tech stack too. 
Yeah. And, and on this note, you know, Colin didn't specifically call it out, but there's obviously a difference between development and technical, like technology choices and product choices. And when I say product, I mean, which features do we build? What do they look like? What's the user interface? What's the user experience of them? And how do we technically architect them? Maybe the technically architect part, that probably actually goes in the first bucket that Colin already raised. But, you know, product decisions, I think maybe a little different because oftentimes, you know, with technology decisions, as we were saying, it's like, yeah, there's one or two kind of obvious choices based on your stack. With product decisions, there's not, right? You, what should we build next? I don't know. It's anybody's guess. And so with product, I think you, especially at, at your early stage when you're small and growing, I think you need one, maybe two product people and they have the vision of where it should go and they take in all the feedback. And, you know, again, it's either one person if you're the product CEO or it is two people like you and I did where we were kind of co-product leads. And as you expand, I mean, you get to a 100-person company, 200-person company, you do need specialists in different areas, typically break it up by the area of the app or break it up to the API and the web app and this and that. There's different product owners there. But at that early stage, I do think you need fairly opinionated people to not let the app just be whatever the customer's request next you build. And I don't think most developers have this the, the product skill. It's a totally different skill set. You know, writing code and architecting and building a feature is a skill set and scaling and all that stuff is a skill set. And I, I mean, you know, in let's say 2008, I had learned that really well and I was a senior in all those things. I knew very, very little about actual product thinking, about what to build, what not to build, how to build things, user experience. And I didn't even realize that I didn't know that skill set. I didn't realize it was a separate skill set. And so in your mind, as a leader, you know, whether you're the CEO, the founder, or you're the kind of the product owner or the, you know, the product manager, so to speak, I would not leave it to a developer unless they have this experience or, you know, they're really sharp and you think they can learn it. I would not leave it to a developer or a team of developers to decide what features to build next. All right. Well, thanks for that, Colin. I hope our thoughts were helpful. Next question is from Will Johnson. He says, you might have spoken about this and I missed it, but I was curious, now that a few years have passed, do you ever regret selling Drip to lead pages? So we sold it in July of 2016. So that's it's a little over four years now. I'm curious. You and I have, have talked about this, but not for quite some time. It was a few years ago we were grabbing beers, chatting about it, but I am curious to hear you thinking on it. Yeah, yeah. Still, I think my answer back then was was no, and I think my answer is still still no. I haven't I haven't woken up and said, "Oh man, I, we shouldn't have done that." And I think I've had time to reflect on it. And I think reflecting back on my experience, we we obviously started this, and there was just two of us, right? And then we grew the team uh, very slowly pre acquisition, and we took on a, a lot of ambitious challenges in building Drip, right? Like it started out very simple and then it became this, this full marketing automation platform. And it was, you know, it was a ride of a lifetime building it. It was a lot of fun. I loved, you know, working with the team that we had. I have a lot of fond memories from that time. But I also realized that like I was, you know, starting to get burned out pretty completely by the end because the journey kind of morphed from let's figure out how to build this really powerful product that you know is really in line with what people are requesting and like there was a lot of energy behind that and it started to slowly become overtaken by the scaling challenges that we had you know we kind of we built such a powerful product i like to laugh about this that you know we kind of get ribbed by by the engineering uh, managers who end up taking over the the engineering team from us at at lead pages and they're like, you guys built a product that's way too powerful. Like we need to put more guardrails in place because like, you know, allowing people to segment by whatever became kind of a nightmare. And like I spent 
had to spend a lot of my time just figuring out how to re-architect things and and keep the app from not falling over, you know, during during that tail end time. And and we were kind of in the thick of that around the time that we got acquired. And so to me, it was like it felt like the right point to entertain, you know, the, the strategic acquisition that we did. I, I don't think I could have done that for many years longer. If something big would have had to change, we would have had to either, you know, raise some funding and build out, hire some like really experienced engineering leaders who had scaled something like Drip before, because I was I was definitely bumping up the bump, bumping up against the edges of my capabilities. I didn't have any experience doing this, so I was just figuring out how to do it as we went along. But I think it would have started to continue to uh, to to burn me out if we had kept going at that pace. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you. I can't think of a day when I've woken up and thought, I wish I was still running Drip. The adventure was amazing and the journey was incredible and it was growing fast. So could we have waited another year and sold it for more money? Yeah, almost certainly. But there are these certain windows that you get. You you don't get an acquisition offer that comes along where someone is serious about it and willing to pay a, a strategic premium. That doesn't come along every day. And to be able to accelerate earnings is really what it was, right? It was to take years and years of any potential net profit we could generate and just accelerate that to the point where it's like, okay, now we're able to move on you know, to the next thing. I was in a similar boat as you in terms of I was struggling with burnout for different reasons, I think, but I was just running, you know, same, probably same reasons. It was just running all over and too many things and there was, there was a lot of stress, you know, a lot of, a lot of stress on both of us. And we totally could have done it. You know, if we didn't have acquisition offers and we're still running Drip, it would be wildly successful and it would be, you know, doing a, a lot of ARR, millions and millions. But wh- when I see that path, it's like, yeah, that would, so that would have been cool. But we've also gone these other paths now and those have been really fun. And I actually enjoyed, I mean, what's interesting is I didn't think I was going to enjoy the post-acquisition time as much as I did. Like when we were still working at Drip slash Lead Pages, obviously there were some things where it's like, well, we're part of a big company now. There were things I didn't like. But I really enjoyed our team and I really enjoyed having the resources for the first time to hire like super senior talent and to scale up servers. And I mean, you know, it wasn't infinity money, but it kind of felt like that given that Lead Pages had raised $38 million in venture and we came from being very cash strapped, that it really felt like a different game we were playing all of a sudden. And I learned a tremendous amount about that type of business and about that side of things and about hiring when you have more resources about what money can do. You know, like these days, again, if I were to start another SaaS app, I would I would either fund it well myself or I, I would raise a round really early because I can absolutely now see how money changes things and where I would spend it to get there faster. And I think 10 years ago, I remember saying, I don't know what more money would do for me. And I hear people say that and it's like, that's cool and that's valid that you don't, but there's almost always a way <laughs> that more money gets you there faster. Yeah, I agree. That was a really, that was a really fun time. And I think that's also, you know, another reason why I, I can't say that I regret selling drip to lead pages. I mean, the question was like, in general, selling drip, and then also like selling to the people that we did. And I think, unfortunately, you hear a lot of acquisition stories where like people, you know, hate their time at, at the company as they're doing their earn out or whatever the arrangement is. And that was not my experience. You know, I, I really got to, we retained basically the entire team for a while and got to grow it and work in an office and a cool office in downtown Minneapolis with, with a bunch of really smart, creative people. And so that was, that was really fun too, to get to 
get to play around with extending the vision for drip while we were there in in directions where like we had more resources to actually throw behind it yeah and i think you know if there's anything like if if you could say regret about anything like i remember when drip after you and i left they've made different choices right they were kind of redesigning the app towards the end they changed the color palette they changed the logo they after we left they did a pricing upgrade or a pricing change that made a lot of people mad i don't know they've done other stuff and I don't regret it in terms of, I wish I still owned it so that we could undo that or whatever. But it it was a little bit sad for me to see that happen, you know, at the time and to feel like, oh man, that's a bummer that, that they went and did that. But at the same time, look what we're doing now. Like we're doing fun stuff. I'm working Tiny Seed Microconf in this podcast. You're doing Savvy Cal. And I just, I'm not the type of person to run the same app for decades. It just wouldn't interest me. And the the drip ride was I was I was doing the math on it from the time you broke ground on code until we sold it was three and a half years. And from the time we really finished the slow launch till we sold it was two and a half. And it felt a lot longer than that, to be honest. <laughs> it felt it felt like at least twice that long. So I think that's uh that's the sign of a journey that, you know, the candle that burns so brightly burns burns half as long. Like it, it feels like that was a very intense journey. And I, I don't know how much <laughs> how long either of us would have wanted to been on that train. Yep, totally. Yep. So thank you for the question. I hope our musings were, uh, were helpful, insightful or informative. Uh, we haven't talked about that in a few years, so it's kind of fun. Our next question is from Dave Lara. And the subject is the effect of web scraping on my business. He says, I'm a software developer who's debating between native and web or a combination of the two. When he says native, do you think he means like a native mobile app or like a native desktop app? Yeah, a little bit further on in his question. I think he's kind of, I think he says mobile, actually, I think. Okay, Um, yeah, cool. Yeah. It sounds like it is virtually impossible to prevent web scraping without degrading the experience for legitimate users. So basically, if I want to create a collection of useful original data on the web for my real users to enjoy, am I just to accept that the data I spent time and money creating will be stolen? That I will have to invest in tools to mitigate this theft and potential for crashing my site from the stress? Or do I look at a closed native mobile environment? There you go. Where scraping would be more difficult and just avoid the web altogether. The more I look into this, the more a native mobile app sounds easier than fighting with scrapers on the web, despite the reduction in users this would cause. Am I looking at it the wrong way? What do you think? This one I, I found a little bit tricky. I mean, I think he's omitting some details for the sake of protecting his intellectual property, probably. So I don't know exactly what the nature of the business is, but it, to me, my assumption is that it's he's aggregating some kind of data. He's pulling together a data set that you know others would would potentially want to just harvest, and instead he's selling access to it. And I guess my my first reaction was that putting it behind in a native mobile app is just another more aggressive, I guess, tactic, you could say, for fighting scrapers. Like, ultimately, if a bad actor wants to steal data that you have explicitly said is not allowed to be to be used in this way, then it's kind of a it's kind of a losing battle. Like people, if there's a will, there's a way, I guess, is, is kind of my, my first reaction. And so, you know, I think stopping ethical people who are entertaining, violating your terms of service, that should be pretty achievable if you make it clear what the boundaries are for using the data in what ways. And if someone is an unethical actor and they want to get your data, you know, whether it's like taking screenshots from a mobile app or sniffing network traffic to figure out what you're, you know, your network API endpoints are for getting that data into the mobile app or whatever. Like, I think you may have a hard time still stopping them, even if you went into a native environment. So I guess, I don't know, my, my initial reaction would be that this, 
to me doesn't sound like something that should necessarily cause you to to make like a huge technical decision that would maybe harm your ability to grow the business just because some bad actors may want to to try to steal data. So I kicked this email over to Chris Dokomodular. He's the founder of Dealforma, which is a tiny seed batch two company. And Dealforma is in essence a business that has proprietary data that they sell to folks in the biotech and pharma space. And I said, have you know, have you thought about this? Like, is this an issue for your business? Because his business is is doing well, it's growing, they sell to enterprise clients. And this would, uh, you know, if someone had his data, that is that is the value, the real value of what he's providing. He said, here's our approach and here's how I think about it. Number one, only paying customers can access their data. Number two, trial users are limited to only those that, that we let in. And that's after a call where we've made some progress towards closing a sale. I know this won't ha- apply to everyone or at scale. Number three, we make it easy for paying customers to export data within reasonable limits so they can get work done, but not so much that they're dumping out all the data. Trial users cannot export. Number four, disabling text highlighting within the data limits the amateurs. Number five, seed the data with unique and obvious wrong data, which we can refer to if we really need to claim copyright infringement, as long as it doesn't affect real usage. And number six, terms of service protect against it. And, you know, he goes on to say, keeping the data up to date with new info and new updates on old events makes any one-time data output stale pretty quickly. And then being selective about customers helps too. It gives them more value on the entire platform over just the data. So there's no guarantees he's saying, but that's how he's thinking about it. So you can check out dealforma.com if you're curious more. And I appreciate Chris weighing in on that. I agree with you. If someone really wants to do it, they can do it. I know that like places like Crunchbase, which a lot of people try to scrape, is, is pretty hard to scrape. They, they use a lot of JavaScript front end. And of course it's possible, but man, I think between using kind of some best practices, like anti-scraping best practices to make it, you know, it's never going to be possible, but to make it difficult without going way outside, you know, spending hundreds of hours building something custom, there have to be libraries in GitHub that help help you do this. And number two, having rate limiting. I mean, I think that's a big thing, right? If your data is paged and, you know, most normal users are going to page through at a human speed, but you can often tell if someone is just by the rate they're hitting it, you know, if they're hitting it in an automated fashion. So very rude. I mean, there's rudimentary advice, but like, that's kind of the step one where I would, I would think about my guess is it's a problem you'll have eventually, but it's not the first thing I'd be worrying about. Like I'd be worried about are customers willing to pay me for this? Can I build a business to five, 10, 15 K a month? You know, whatever your goals are, like there are way more important things to be worried about. And personally, I would not make the decision to go mobile only if this is the only reason. I don't think this is enough of a reason to not build a web app. Yeah, I mean, we over time, like Drip was obviously subject to a lot of potential abuse from spammers and we had to over time kind of build up a a moat of of defenses against all the different ways that that people tried to misuse the system. And yeah, it's like, I think it's at this point, it sounds like you're early on enough in, in your own business that it's not totally clear what the attack vectors are potentially going to be for someone who wants to really try to do harm to your business or, or steal value. So I think I would try not to make too many upfront assumptions about that because it's going to be really hard to know uh, what are the ways that people are actually you know, trying to do that, if at all, or maybe this won't even be an issue. So thanks for the question, Dave. It's an interesting one I don't think we've, we've had before in all the hundreds of Q, Q&A episodes we've done. So that was a fun one. Hopefully that was helpful for you. 
Our next question is from Evan G. And his subject line is, huge growth in a year, should I jump ship from my full-time job? He said, hey, Rob, I reached out a few months ago about a migration tool I built that was seeing about $3,000 a month in one-time sales. I've since modified the product a bit and figured out how to also sell it as a monthly subscription tool. And I remember, I think Mike and I talked about this one, and we were trying to figure out if a one-time migration tool could be sold as a subscription, but obviously he's been able to do that. He said, here we are getting close to finishing out the year, and I just hit $100,000 in gross revenue with $1,500 in MRR with 40 customers. If you remember from last time, which I'm guessing is unlikely, this product has massive platform risk. I built a feature of a product. So in essence, it moves data from one product to a competitor, I believe. And so if that competitor basically built this, then you know he's saying he would be out of business. My passion is entrepreneurship, and I love this, but I also know my revenue could literally end tomorrow if the product just released my feature. I stay in touch with the product manager over there as they currently point people my way. Nonetheless, the risk is there, but I feel like I've built an audience that I'm exploring building new products for. If I'm going to make more money on this project than I do at my full-time job, is it time to quit and pursue this thing further? I have a 5,000-person email list of potential customers, some of which I've already started chatting with about a new product, but part of me is scared too. I have a wife and a kid I support, and frankly, I've gotten used to having two income streams. I'm going to make over $200,000 this year between my full-time job and side project. Maybe not life-changing, but still a lot of money in my opinion. Would love some advice on stuff you would be thinking through, whether to make the jump or not. He also has a follow-up, but let's dig into that. What do you think, sir? Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of the, the classic decision point that a lot of us bootstrappers end up going through. I think it, I mean, it very much comes down to what is your own tolerance for risk? You know, how much how much money do you have in the bank? If things were to go sideways, do you are you comfortable with that? But I think in my mind, I think a lot of us, I, I put myself in this category. I think I tend to be a little too risk averse sometimes. And I try to remember that like, you know, with with the skill set that I have, and I think you're probably in a similar situation where you have a very marketable skill set. What's really the biggest risk if you do make the jump? Will you be unable to get a job within, you know, a couple of months? Or do you think you have a high likelihood of being able to to put your skills to work on the on the job market if needed? And so if the answer is like, yeah, I think I could probably get a job given my network and my skills, then um, this might very well be the right time to kind of double down on your own independent business. But I think it's, it is a very personal decision, I guess. Like you, I in the past have also been a bit more risk averse than I should have been. And I wish that I'd taken some leaps that I hadn't. You know, you, t- you want to talk about regrets. It's not selling drip. It's staying working a full-time job too long, or it's not doubling down on things and taking bigger bets with different amounts of money that I had at the time. So I think it, it does depend, Evan, on your comfort level with this, right? I mean, risk tolerance is one thing. When I see this type of platform risk, it does concern me a bit. The way to get away from platform risk is to build this for a bunch of platforms, is to have five platforms, each generating $100,000. And then if any one of them shuts you out, you know, you still have a good chunk of money. We actually see this with a lot of Shopify apps, is between Shopify and BigCommerce and what are the others, Magento and WooCommerce, even those that do move out to each of those platforms, Shopify is just the 900-pound gorilla. And so, you know, you'll see an app with 80% of its, of its MRR coming from a Shopify thing that could get, get killed by platform risk. And that's something that you got to figure out, how much do I believe this is going to happen? In addition, do you think if they want to build this, that maybe they would just acquire you? And you get a nice multiple on this? I mean, I think that's something we talked about in, in the last episode. So my take, 
I don't want to give someone else advice because I, I think to Derek's point, like we don't know how much money you have in the bank, but if you're able to save a good chunk of this and if you quit your job and everything went south tomorrow, like you could live for months on your savings, then really what, it's that question, what is the worst that can happen? The real worst, like even in a, if we went back into being in a recession, you're a software developer with skills, what do you do? You, you get a job, you build this out. I mean, if, if the platform risk killed this overnight, if they suddenly built it, A, I don't think your revenue would go to zero instantly. It would take, a, I mean, it would go down, but I st- you have traffic, you have you know leads coming in, maybe there's things you do a little better than if they were to try to build it in-house. And then how long would it take you to expand it? to other software packages to diversify. So there are a lot of ways. There's often that thing, it's that fear of, oh my gosh, if this happens, then we're done. And I remember thinking with Drip, it's like, oh no, the Russian spammers sent you know all these phishing emails through Drip one Sunday night. And I remember, and all our bla- we got blacklisted, all of our IPs. And I remember kind of wiping my hands saying, well, we've had a good run, but you know what? We, we were fine. It sucked for a couple of days and then we got de-blacklisted and everything was fine. And these things that seem catastrophic, don't get me wrong, there are some things that really are, but most of them are not. And most of them as like savvy entrepreneurs, one of our biggest strengths is figuring out creative situations to things that just seem insurmountable in the moment. And so... Yeah, I think I think you and I are both when I when I hear us talking, it's we're, we both are, are probably trying not to give them direct advice, but it's like we're both kind of leaning towards you should probably just do it. Is that is that what we're saying? I mean, I think so. I, that's that's probably what I would say. Yeah, yep. making a hundred k from a from a one time use tool is that's it's pretty cool. He had a follow up question as well, which I actually like, and I don't think we've ever talked about on the show. He said. Do you share your successes with family and friends? I officially hit 100,000 in gross this year, and I feel like I have no one to share it with besides my wife. And yes, that's a great person to share it with. However, I have close friends and family, and to them, I don't want to tell them I made all this money because I don't want to sound like I'm bragging. I just want someone to be excited and pumped for me. How do you share your accomplishments with others? And I, I, I like this question because I think I know that I encountered that, you know, as I would build apps and I got to hit tail to 20, 25K a month. And it's like, I'd never seen that much money in my life. And I couldn't tell that to a lot of my family and, I, and a lot of friends. And I actually remember telling it to a friend and like a month later, he has to borrow money. And I was like, oh man, like that sucks. Because, you know, then I have to be like, well, I don't really loan money. to, You know, I mean, it was just a, it was just a situation. So I'm curious what, what your experience has been, Derek. Yeah, similarly, like, I I think the way I think about this is like, most lay people don't really know how to interpret like SaaS metrics. Like, most people don't know what MRR is. Then you tell them, well, it's monthly recurring revenue. And then if they're not, especially if they're not entrepreneurs, you know, if you tell them, I've experienced this on both sides, you know, I'm celebrating 1000 a month, you know, I just had that celebration recently with Savvy Cal. And to certain people who don't know any better, they're kind of like, oh, is that sorry, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Like that's a low number, you know? And then on the flip side, if you reach reach these various milestones, 10K, 50K, whatever, sometimes if people don't know, they can just think, oh, now you're rich. Are you going to buy a private island? And so personally, I enjoy sharing it most with, with like a mastermind group or advisors or people who are in the same space, playing the same game and know what these different milestones actually mean. And then with with family and friends, I do still like to sell, try to celebrate milestones. I think that's like really important for mental health and, and to give people a window into this like crazy hard endeavor that you're doing. But I usually try to like abstract it a little bit. So, 
you know, maybe I'll say like, now this business is paying my living expenses or something like that instead of like an actual dollar amount. Because people, if people don't understand the dynamics of a business and that if you say a big number, it's not all pure profit or whatever. It just kind of helps from muddying those waters a little bit, I guess. So that's kind of how I approach it with, with friends and family. Yeah, I like your point about sharing with other entrepreneurs. And I actually emailed back and forth with Evan a little bit. And that was the advice I gave him is like, you really should have a mastermind, right? Or a group of people that you talk to regularly who who just get what these things are. And I I mean, I, mean, I remember telling a friend, oh yeah, the drip hit 40K of, you know, of monthly revenue. And, you know, the guy was like, oh, that's how much I make in my day job in a year. And I was like, yeah, but it's like not all going into my bank account. You know, but it's still, again, it's that weird thing of like, so that your business has half a million dollars a year and there's three or four of you working on it. Wow, that's a, that's a profitable business. It, it can get weird. So I didn't share a lot of stuff along the only journey with outside people who, like yourself, you know, you and Phil and I were in a mastermind. And I'm sure at times I said big numbers, but you guys at least knew what the context is there. And so, yeah, Evan, I think if you're looking for other people to share it with, I, I like your way of kind of obfuscating the exact thing. You know, hey, it's paying my living expenses. And, you know, your next thing is it's, it's buying me a private yacht and it's buying me the second private jet and an island in, uh, in Hawaii, right? So then you're, <laughs> you're obfuscating it so they don't really know how much it is. But I, I think that's cool. I think that's a nice way to do it if you're um, wanting to share it with other people. And then obviously getting together with entrepreneurs who, you know, it's the microconf community, right? If you went into microconf connect and you said, I hit hundred K and posted the, the screenshot hundred K in a year, like people would be like, bravo, man, like way to go. And no one would be like, wow, you're rich. Or can I borrow money? Or, you know, cause it is just, that's just a great, it's a great milestone to hit. So thanks for sharing that with us, Evan. I appreciate it. All right. I think we're going to do our last question here. This is from Mike Needle. And he says, first off, thanks for all you do with the Bootstrap Startup community. I've been listening to you for several years now and your consistency helps push me forward. I'm currently building option.io, which <laughs> I as the name is cool when it's written out, but saying it on a podcast, it's like, how is that spelled? It is, it's not U-P-S-H-O-N, it is U-P-T-I-O-N. And the H1 on that is join a mastermind group focused on reading personal development books. So Mike describes it as a platform to join temporary book clubs slash masterminds centered on a specific book with the focus being on personal development and business topics. I went back and listened to episode 167 of Started to the Rest of Us from January of 2014 on starting a mastermind. And I'm curious what you think has changed in the past almost seven years. What advice do you have on how to curate masterminds for others? And finally, what book titles would you have loved to read and discuss with others? So several questions in there, sir. You want to just pick one and go? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you can probably speak better to to what has changed from your previous episode about it. But I guess I'll just speak generally about like a couple of things that I've noticed out of my mastermind groups in the last few years that have been that have been really positive. I think a couple of qualities that I look for or, or try to cultivate, you know, is like varied degrees of experience. So like we, when there's, when there's a couple of different people at different levels in their business, but not too far away from each other, but close enough where it's like, I can still remember if someone's further along. They can still remember when the people who are not quite as far along were in that phase and still can still offer advice that they can draw from their own experience. You know, it's like, I, I think it'd be hard for me to be in a mastermind group with Jason Fried, you know, because it's like, <laughs> he's been running this, 
multi multi million dollar business now for many many years and like the problems he deals with are far different than the problems that that I'm dealing with and so I think being being close enough but having someone there to to kind of pull you up and then you know it's kind of nice to be the person in the middle position too if there's someone who's not quite as far along as you it can help you to like solidify your own thinking and way strategy around business if you're if you're helping strategize with someone who's not quite as far along as you I think you know masterminds where you can have complete transparency a high degree of trust usually the ones that have that have been lasted the longest for me are ones where we're actually friends too you know it's not just business and so we have really strong personal rapport with each other and we're we would get along outside of the context of just talking about business and really trust each other a lot and then the finally my my favorite element of masterminds when they kind of function as like an extension of my founding team because I'm doing the solo founder thing and it really it's really nice to have a co-founder. So if you don't, you know, if you can lean on your mastermind group in the same way, in a lot of the same ways that you would as a co-founder, at least to talk through hard problems that you're dealing with, that's a that's a major win. Yeah, when I think back to what's changed, it's not much. I mean, we actually, when we launched MicroConf Masterminds, which you can check out at microconfmasterminds.com, which is a matching service we do to get, get folks together and linked up, we went back to though there were two episodes about masterminds and pulled out a lot of that content and turned it into a guide. Maybe it's two guides. I forget if it's one or two, but it's kind of like how to start and run a mastermind. And it's, you know, like a eight or 10 page ebook that you can download for free at the microconf website. And when we looked through it, I mean, there, it was pretty much timeless stuff. You know, it was how to arrange it. There are a couple different formats you can choose. A lot of what you just said, you know, was, was communicated in there. And so I don't think I have any big takeaway of like, oh man, it's just so we've innovated so much on this model and it's so different. It's kind of like, no, I'd, I like personally, I like three person masterminds. I think four starting to get big. I think two is fine, but it's not enough. You put, you know, there's, there's nuances and, and personal preferences, but I don't think a ton has changed. His second question was, what advice do you have on how to curate masterminds for others? I mean, I think it's it's providing that introductory guide or ebook of like, this is what a mastermind is. This is like our opinion about what they are. And this is how perhaps you, you pick a format, you get pretty, you know, you can get opinionated or you can say these are the two or three, you know, your group can choose from in terms of like always doing hot seats or just doing round robin every time. And that's a nice thing when you do have, let's say three people is you do an hour, everybody gets 20 minutes. That tends to be plenty of, of time. Or when it was you, me and Phil drinking in my kitchen, it was three of us, each person gets 45 minutes and two are like so tired hired at 11, you know, trying to pry ourselves out of there. Those, those are uh, some of the fun ones. I have good memories. Those were the days. Yeah. Yep. You know, I think curating masterminds for others is just about trying to pick people who, like you said, are near each other in the journey. Although with a book mastermind, I mean, this is more of a book club. I don't, you know, I don't know that you necessarily need to, to be as, as close in the, in the stage of the journey as you do if you're going to meet week in, week out or month in, month out and, and really talk about your companies. Oh, no, I guess I was going to say like that just came to mind when you were saying that like book masterminds. I mean, I suppose curating those probably involves like if you're doing a deep dive on something very specific, you know, if it's general business advice, then that may be generally applicable. But if it's very specific, then like trying to pull the other people who are struggling with that specific thing, like if you're, if you're doing a, a deep dive on paid acquisition or something, then if you're diving into something about that and like, you know, obviously trying to pull the other people who are actively working on that problem and not just uh, not just theoretically. It's probably more chance for success. Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, this is an interesting experiment. I don't know that I've heard of um, someone doing this before. So curious to see how it turns out. His last question is, what book titles would you have loved to read and discuss with others? And I assume he means kind of back in the early days, maybe? I mean, I think 
I don't know that I have any off the top of my head. I start small, stay small, of course. That would, whatever. of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember reading and really liking the personal MBA back in the day, but that is a lot of generalized knowledge and, and less applicable to actually, you know, getting off the ground. Yeah, I'm having trouble thinking of others. I mean, well, you know, there was one that was a, a copywriting book. It was like the ultimate sales letter and the ultimate sales machine. And there were, you know, there were some like really tactical ones, but I don't know that those are as interesting because they're just a little dry and it's a lot of tactics. Do you have any, you have any thoughts? Do you have any books you would wish you could have read through with a book club? Yeah, probably a couple. Like I think if it's a group that's kind of earlier on in their journey, but even this is applicable to people who are, who are further along and still doing like customer interviews. But I think the mom test is a book that I talk about all the time. And it's kind of just a framework for how to talk to customers in a way that will actually be useful and not give you biased data. I see that that mistake being made over and over again, because it's just so hard to do. And that book is really, um, really tight, really actionable, and kind of crystallizes it crystallized in my head the first time I read it. And I felt like, man, this should be on the on the reading list for any founder who's trying to validate a market and, and get a product out there. I also really like the traction book too. It's one that I re- return to all the time. Ah, that's yeah. a good one. Absolutely. Yeah. By Gabriel Weinberg and Justin Maris. That's a good one. That That is definitely, did I ever tell you the story? So I sketched out this idea in, I don't remember what year it was, but I wrote it all out and I asked Ruben Gomez about it. And I said, I want to write a book. There's no book I know out there about like SaaS or startup marketing. And I want each chapter to be a marketing approach. And I want to give like an active, like a real case study of me doing it or someone else doing it. And it'll just be a big buffet, you know, just a big list of marketing approaches so people could go to it and, and pick from it. And he's like, that's a great book. You should write that. And then I, I don't know what happened. I either bought Hittail or we started Drip or something. And it's like, who has time for that? And when they came out with it, I was like, yes, it was not, oh no, it was, I'm so glad someone wrote this. You know, it, 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 whether it was me or not, it's just such a good book. It's such a good idea and they, you know, they implemented it well and they, they went to experts who knew each of the areas and interviewed them and, and then give kind of uh, ideas and stuff how to get, get it accomplished. So Yeah, really good. They've got kind of a, a framework you can follow. So if you want to run through an exercise to try to distill down some, some like ones to test first, different traction channels. And then it also, for me, just kind of serves as like a reference. Like if I'm needing to brainstorm, want to come up, like spark some inspiration for, for how to grow the business, I will just often return to it and thumb through it and usually spark some inspiration. Yeah. That's a good one. I'm glad you thought of it. Because I was trying to think, you know, there were books that were impactful on me, like the four-hour work week back in the late 2000s. But so maybe back in the day, I would have liked to talk about that. I was really, really early in the journey. I mean, I only owned, I think it was 2007. Is that when I, I think that's when I bought it. I'm maybe misremembering, but I think the only app I owned was like .NET Invoice at the time. And so I was applying some of the hiring of VA overseas and, you know, learning some of that outsourcing stuff. Um, and that would have been fun back in the day, but I definitely wouldn't want to do that today. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't really apply. Yeah. I also got to give a shout out to uh, Dr. Sherry Walling's book, Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together. I mean, it's, and that's probably a good one to do a, a book club on, honestly, because you can, it's probably a lot of like kind of exploring your own psychology that you can dig into a little bit with other founders and might be a, a bit therapeutic. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, that would be a really good one. I already jokingly plugged my own book, but I, I agree because I think a lot of founders go through the tough experiences. I mean, you and I on this podcast have just been like, yeah, we were kind of burning out. And yet, you and I never sat down and talked about that, you know, and, and we didn't, I should have probably got a therapist at the time just to vent and, and think of how to make things better. And, you know, I don't know. And, and it's like, it blindsides you, right? It catches you off guard, I think. And you don't, maybe you don't even realize it at the time. And I think 
having that book knowledge in your head and being able to discuss it would be a, would be a good one. Well, sir, it's great having you on the show. If they want to hear from you every week talking about what you're up to on Savvy Cal with your co-host, Ben Orenstein, Art of Product in any podcatcher, and it's the art of productpodcast.com. If they want to see your show notes, as you say, at the end of every episode. Yeah, exactly. It's become a trope now. <laughs> yeah, and you are at Derek Reimer on Twitter, and we'll, of course, link that up in our show notes. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Derek for coming on the show. If you have a question that you'd like to hear answered by myself or a future guest, send it into questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. I'll be doing probably one Q&A episode a month, assuming there's enough question volume, and so far there has been. If you send a voicemail, you can send it as a Dropbox link or a Google Drive link or however else you want to get that to me. Those go to the top of the stack. Thanks again for joining me this week for episode 530, and I'll talk to you again next Tuesday morning.